I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. You know, one of the things that I'll be doing next week um, is actually taking a couple of animals to uh, be processed. Ah, okay. Yeah, that'll be the last of our 2020 uh, meat harvest. Uh, As you know, my husband David and I raise 100% grass-fed beef on our farm in... uh, Actually, our farm is right between the towns of Amory and Clear Lake. Mm -hmm. So we're on 72 rolling and very rocky acres. (laughs) As you know, our area, Dave Corbett, is all about rocks. Yeah, It's perfect pasture land, and you too also raise Mm -hmm. um, grass-fed beef. So we'll be taking our animals in, and one of the interesting things about being a livestock producer on a smaller scale is that you have to, of course, call up a small local beef processor. Right. Somebody who knows how to slaughter and then butcher that beef so that you have those marvelous cuts that are uh, very well frozen, they're beautifully butchered, uh, vacuum packaged, and clearly labeled. Fortunately, we have a, a butcher that we use that's about an hour away from our farm, and we're very lucky. Mm -hmm. that we have one as close as we do because things really, really changed this year. As you know, um, when we all became more aware of COVID in the spring, Mm -hmm. one of the things that happened was we found out that uh, people were infected along the processing lines of those factories that do hundreds and hundreds of beef and hog and poultry and and lamb on a single day. And with those uh, closures and slowdowns came a greater public awareness of, oh my gosh, where can I get my meat? Mm -hmm. And so demand for locally produced skyrocketed. Right. And that has created an amazing domino effect on the availability of those small local processors, a domino effect of lack of capacity, mm-hmm. an issue that we would not have really imagined about five or six years ago. So what's all this mean? Well, we have with us today someone who is actually uh, looking at this issue with a really, really big and uh, a broad eye, as well as a sharp focus. And that is Lauren Langworthy, who is the director of special projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union. And she's and I are going to chat a little bit about why this is an issue uh, for people like you and me, Dave Corbett, and what we might be thinking about going forward in the future. Lauren, good morning and thank you for being with us. Good morning, Sylvia. It's great to be with you. You know, Lauren, yours is a name that uh, Dave Corbett said uh, as we were kind of looking at our notes. Haven't we spoken with her before? And of course we have, because 
Very recently, you were the executive director of the Midwest Organic Sustainable and Education Services. So, yes. So yes, I recently uh, switched to a new role over at Farmers Union, but still have a very soft spot in my heart for Moses as well. Oh, thank you so much, because working together is really, really critical and uh, really comes into focus when you take a look at an issue like this. Meat processing on the smaller scale in an effort to meet the demands of smaller scale livestock producers. Okay, Lauren, as you think about it, how would you uh, quickly describe what the con con uh, situation currently is? Yeah, well, um, I'll maybe start by talking a little bit about how Wisconsin Farmers Union got into this, this question because it highlights how the problem has been affecting small-scale producers. Our organization is membership-driven, so every winter we have uh, what we, we consider a, a policy debate. We have a policy booklet. And all of the language in that gets um, reviewed by our members and, and adjusted, and we highlight a few areas of our policy book that we call special orders, which are things that our membership feels need special attention. So way back in January 2020, before COVID even happened, our members highlighted meat processing infrastructure as an issue that was impacting their operations. Um, they, they pulled together some language that was voted on, and, and one of the things that they highlighted was that access to small-scale meat processing service for smaller and mid-scale farms was creating market access issues, and it was actually advantaging the really large corporations who have their own processing, who are vertically integrated. Um, and so they were highlighting at that time that, you know, some of them were several months out, three, six months out in booking processing dates. As you highlighted, when COVID came about, all of that got gummed up even worse. And now we're hearing from members that some people are two years out on processing dates, which means they might be booking a harvest date for an animal that isn't even born yet. Um, you can imagine how tricky that becomes as a, as a farmer to not only make sure an animal is born on time and, and raised out properly, but is actually finished in line with the harvest date. So that's kind of how we're coming at this problem. And I think you've done a really good job talking about how it has impacted your farm even, uh, making sure that you're able to get those, those good quality cuts to your customers and make sure that as a business person yourself, you're, you're meeting the demands of the customer. Well, Lauren, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you and, and your husband, Caleb, are also farmers. You have a, um, a large flock of, of sheep as well as, as some grass-fed beef, which you rotationally graze. So this is something that strikes home for you as well. And I'm going to ask you if you're, you had this experience. So I have, you know, been direct marketing, which means we've been breeding and selling and um, grass-fed beef for over a decade now. And in that time, we have seen small meat processors shutter their doors because of the high cost of doing business, the high cost of machinery, lack of trained uh, butcher, butchering staff, and because of what at that time was lagging business. So now we kind of come forward to today, um, or rather three years ago. Let's look, look at three years ago. Three years ago, I started looking for another processing uh, f 
facility to get my beef processed. And at that time, when I tried to schedule some of my beef at this processor, there were, um, I, I had to actually schedule 10 months to 12 months in advance because the number of processors had been diminishing and the demand had been slowly growing. As you said, COVID really gummed up the uh, situation, but I think maybe sometimes even more than that, what it did was expose a really bad situation by um, exerting even more pressure on it. So when we take a look at, at the issue right now, do we have enough processors? Do we not have enough processors? Are the scale of our processors too small? Why are we in the place we are right now? You know, that's a great question. And that's something that uh, in my role at Farmers Union, we're trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, we're hosting a series of, of webinar conversations, you know, because we can't gather in person uh, to explore some of the issues that are actually at the root of this, this problem, because it's not just you know, our processor is too busy. Um, there, there's something deeper going on. And just this last week, we had a, a, a webinar that was focused on, it was a panel of farmers and processors talking about, you know, what are the issues? What is at the root of all of this? And something that we've heard from a lot of the processors that we've been talking with is certainly the labor question. Um, there's there's a struggle with finding people who are skilled to do all of the roles and making sure to keep them, especially when they're trying to keep their costs low as a small business. Um, that can be really hard to make sure that you're paying people well enough and, and able to hold on to them in the long term. If they're really good at their job, you know, other processors are going to be interested in them as well. Um, but there's also uh, an investment issue that a lot of small processors are having. You know, many of these facilities have been around for a while, and they haven't been able to grow, maybe. Uh, they maybe haven't been able to invest in, in all the newer equipment that they would like to invest in. And as we talk to them about that problem, it's a precarious situation. And we can think of this as farmers, too. You don't necessarily want to go out and buy the shiniest new combine if you're not sure that you're going to be able to pay that back. Mm -hmm. If you're not sure that you're going to have the... Um, consistent business as a processor, it can be really hard to make those investments. And kind of like farmers do, you know, maybe you, you go along on a shoestring and you kind of use your bailing twine to keep things running, right? You, uh, mm -hmm. you minimize how much you're putting into your business. And so a lot of the processors we've been speaking with have been talking about that lack of investment and difficulty taking on the debt it would require to maybe build out their facilities and, and be able to bring on more animals and so that's certainly a piece of the the question too um you know as farmers we're bringing in our animals maybe once a year or maybe for a few months out of the year um depending on our size and our scale of markets but uh we're not necessarily thinking about bringing in 10 head a week all year round when we're smaller scale producers and if you're a processor you need to think about how to keep your your plant busy all year round in order to pay off those investments. And so uh, one of the conversations that's coming up is how do we support them um, maybe through aggregation or, or some other mechanism to make sure that they have 
the kind of capacity that they need all year round to fill their plants um, so that they can make that big leap and investment in maybe adding a larger slaughter facility or or a larger cut and wrap area. You know, that whole notion of scale certainly came up at the webinar that uh, you held this past week. I was fortunate in getting your email uh, from the Wisconsin Farmers Union alerting me to that, that webinar, which is one of a series of webinars all around this issue. And the, the idea of scale was, of course, primary. And it's something that you as a f smaller scale farmer and I as a smaller scale farmer and the uh, slaughter and processing facility that was on the call, they all understand the notion of scale. But I'm suspecting some of the uh, people who are listening to this show today don't um, have a real clear idea, because they're not familiar with it, of what we mean by scale. So I'm gonna ask just a couple of questions about that, Lauren. Right now, there are just four companies in the United States that actually slaughter and butcher 98% of all the beef that's mm -hmm. sold in the United States. And that all that meat is being processed in just 50 facilities. So when we take a look and think about the millions and millions of pounds of meat that are processed in, an, in a year in the United States, all of that is being channeled through just four companies and 50 plants that they operate. Mm -hmm. That leaves the, the remainder, you know, around 2%, to be going to these small custom processors that now have had the demand for local beef shot through the roof because of the shortages that became apparent and the weaknesses in the uh, food chain that became apparent with the COVID demand. So let me talk about scale. So we're talking about millions and millions and millions of pounds going through just 50 plants. Some of the, when we're talking about scale, mm -hmm. we're talking about pro small and medium-scale processors that might handle how many animals, Warren, in a week? Yeah, um, well, it definitely depends on the facility, but one of the things that I've been hearing is that there are a couple of break-even points um, in these businesses, as there, there may be in farming, too, uh, depending on your operations. But we've heard from a, a few processors that you kind of need to get to at least a, a 10 beef head a day kind of level all year round in order to hit that first break-even cash flow point. Um, and the next one comes at about 100 head a day, which would be two truckloads. Um, and so, yes, when you think about the scale of these small, smaller processors that are maybe doing 10 head a day versus these large monopolies that are able to, you know, import thousands of animals and process them, it's massively different scale. And so when the an initial fright came, you know, will there be enough beef, pork, poultry in spring? One of the things that I experienced, Lauren, were calls from all over the country, people who were frightened and wanting to know if they could purchase my beef. Mm -hmm. 
and if I would ship. And they couldn't understand why they had to make 10 and 15 and 20 calls to find any available beef. Some of these calls ended up taking 20 minutes for me because I said, you know what, I can't send you any beef, but let me tell you why you're having such a problem. They were very patient, they would listen, and the, the, by the end of the call, so many of these hopeful uh, purchasers said, I had no idea. I had no idea that these were the various steps in the food chain to get an animal from the field to the chiller and finally to their plate. Um, are you finding that there's a lot more conversation going on between farmers and processors now? You know, I think um, depending on the processor and on the farmer, a lot of us, I'm sure you're kind of this way too, uh, we have relationships with our processors. And, um, you know, in the example of my own farm, uh, we raise lamb, as you said, and, and so we had our dates booked out for this whole year's lamb crop uh, right before the pandemic happened. You know, in, in January and February, we were setting up all those dates to make sure that we had everything ready to make things smooth for ourselves and our customers for the year. And then everything turned topsy-turvy. Um, not everybody was in that same position. You know, there have been years where uh, we don't know how many lambs exactly we're going to have, and we have to add dates or, um, you know, something happens, and, and we end up having to switch around our dates or add more. And so in our situation, we were very lucky to have those dates coordinated, um, most of them. But as we got to July, August, we started looking ahead to next spring's harvest dates for some of our beef um, and looking ahead to next fall and and started booking those out too and one of the things that our processor said was um, you know he was feeling really frustrated because he had longtime customers who he'd been working with so closely for many years on their animals he knows them he knows their animals he knows how to cut them well and with all of these new folks hopping in um, you know there were people who maybe worked with some of the really large pig producers who were out in western Minnesota and were trying to buy up hogs and get them processed. Um, there were all sorts of things going on in the mess of, of the pandemic and the meat scare. And he ended up with a lot more booked dates than he normally has. And that meant that when his longtime customers circled back to him for the next year or two years out, he was already booked. And that was certainly frustrating for him. Um, because as a small business owner, he can't say no to the first people who call and book those dates. Um, and it's the right thing for him to do to make sure that he's taking care of his business. But it also feels so frustrating when you have these long-term relationships that you can't maybe support in the way you normally would. Um, and so I do think that there are a lot more conversations, even though some of us are, are quite close with our processors. And I do think you're right about the consumer piece as well. There are a lot of people who just expect meat to be on the shelf every time they go to the grocery store and have never thought about the, the whole chain that brings an animal from a farm or a facility all the way to that grocery store. And so to start learning about what this looks like and um, you know even questions about like uh, cool for those who are familiar um, and those who aren't, that's the country of origin labeling for meat. In, in this country, we don't label 
where your meat comes from. And so a lot of people are buying meat stamped USDA and thinking that it came from a farm down the road, not necessarily knowing that it was inspected by USDA, but maybe grown in Brazil mm. um, and, and processed through some of these really large monopoly chains. And so I think it's been a really great opportunity in a lot of ways to talk with people about how fragile that chain is and how much of it they, they really don't know about their meat if they're buying off the grocery store shelf. And, and to think about how if you really want to keep small-scale farmers on the landscape, how do you need to maybe change your habits as an eater in order to support those businesses? Because they do provide a value <clears throat> not only in, in high-quality beef, but in the way that the money circulates through a local economy. And that yeah. is key. So, Lauren, you have a series of webinars. Uh, you had one this past week. What different aspects of this issue will you be looking at in future webinars? Well, the next webinar that's coming up is in mid-January on the 14th. And that one's going to be looking at mobile slaughter and on-farm processing. One of the things that we've heard from, from quite a few farmers is that they are, if they can't access a, a processor in the way they would like to, um, or maybe because of different ethical reasons or for kosher or halal butchering, they would sure like to have better access to on-farm slaughtering. And so there's been discussion about maybe uh, group investment or cooperative investment in mobile slaughter facilities or other on-farm processing. So that's going to be our, our next webinar in January. Um, at the end of January, we're going to be talking about more creative, cooperative, and community solutions. And so that might look like investment in your local butcher as a group of farmers, um, or it might look like a group of farmers coming together to develop new processing, um, or many other things. Uh, these are all exploratory. Mm. Um, following that, we're going to be looking into state and federal policy solutions, some of the labor issues and, and potential solutions to those labor struggles, and then some creative marketing, um, particularly for those who are selling direct to consumer, but, but also looking at people who are kind of on that mid-scale and maybe can't, um, maybe can't take on the, all the labor and logistics required to do all of their marketing direct to consumer. So those are a few things that we're going to be exploring. Um, but within all of these webinars, one of our goals is to get our members and the community talking to each other and to break up into some small groups uh, based on region and to try and think about, well, what are the best solutions in my area or what are the best solutions to my problem, my neighbor's problem, so that we can start to tackle this a little bit more holistically and in our own communities as opposed to waiting for a top-down approach to fix the problem for us. Mm. You know, we're certainly concerned about the antitrust issues with all of that consolidation, and that's something we're working on at a more federal level. Um, and we certainly need there to be some community investment and probably government investment in making sure that these facilities exist so that they can be part of our, our food security, part of our access to food in local areas. But um, we also need to come up with our community solutions. And so that's a, a big driver in these conversations is let's understand the problem and let's start to think about what might work for us. Uh, Lauren, do you have to be a member of the Wisconsin Farmers Union to uh, sit in on these webinars? You do not. 
Um, they're open to anyone, and you can find a lot more information about it on the Wisconsin Farmers Union page. If you go to wisconsinfarmersunion.com slash processing, uh, you'll find a whole lot of resources we've put together, and you can start to dig into this issue a little bit and sign up for all of those webinars. I will say, though, that as a member, it's, it's $30 for a year of membership, which is, I think, pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. And if you are a member, you can participate in this whole policy discussion that we have um, in January where we dig through this book and we figure out all of the things that are impacting us as small-scale farmers, family farmers, and we try and um, figure out what we want to do about it. And I think there's a lot of power in that. So you certainly aren't required to be a member, but there are some pretty fun perks to being a member, too. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, well, uh, Dave Corbett, as you listen to all of this. One of the things I was kind of curious about is um, uh, selling uh, beef to the public. Uh, does that have to be inspected, and does every processor that we may see along the road, are they licensed to process beef for sale to the public? How does all that work? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit complicated, um, but long story short, there are state inspections and there are also federal inspections. Um, they are required for, for different aspects of selling meat. And for most Wisconsin small-scale producers, they can get away with, with um, going through a state-inspected facility and selling that meat to their community. But if, for example, you want to bring meat over the state border into the Twin Cities, now you have to be looking at a USDA inspection. And for some of the larger marketing aspects, if you're trying to get into like a grocery store chain, for example, then you need to be looking at that, that federal inspection. So it's best to contact the butcher that you're hoping to work with and ask them about their inspections. You can also connect with DATCAP, which is the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, and talk to them about how you're trying to sell your meat, whether it's direct to consumer or to a co-op or a grocery store, and get a little bit of guidance on exactly what you need. Lauren, the, the webinars that you're holding right now, are they, are they really about uh, trying to get a better grasp of just how big and deep this whole issue is so that the Wisconsin Farmers Union can begin to work with the membership on, geez, what, what, what are we going to do about this? Yeah, our staff has been talking with folks across the country who, um, you know, different states have had different solutions to the short-term problem and are planning different solutions for the longer-term problems. But we really want to get a, a 360 view on, on what exactly is impacting people. So we want to hear from a variety of farmers from all across the state who are marketing in different ways, who have access to different processors, who are growing different species on their farm. Um, and, and we want to talk to different processors as well and hear from them what's impacting their business and how can we be helpful. Um, we can certainly learn a lot from some of the other states who've, for example, used that CARES money early in the, the coronavirus response um, to create grants for processors to maybe access USDA inspections so that more farmers could use them um, for their different marketing needs or to move from uh, maybe being an uninspected facility who can process things for a person to eat on their own but not to sell and encourage them to move into state or USDA inspection. Um, there are 
states who've developed uh, educational programming through their land-grant universities uh, to kind of work at that labor issue and, and make sure that we've got the skilled labor we need. But there are so many different potential ways to support this problem, and we need to think really long and hard about what are the most impactful to really address our problems um, so that we don't run around and, and waste a lot of energy on, on small pieces that, you know, maybe help help a little bit but aren't really getting at the heart of the problem. So we're excited to hear from as many people as we can about how they think they can see some, some help here and, and how our organization might be able to help move the needle. Oh, thank you. Well, Lauren Langworthy, I am so glad that we you were able to join us today on an issue that certainly has been burbling under the surface for several years and is now something that the Wisconsin Farmers Union has decided to look at in depth. So could you give us your website again so that we can uh, kind of go there and find out when the next webinars are? Absolutely. If you go to wisconsinfarmersunion.com, all one word, uh, you can find a lot of information about the organization. If you add a slash processing onto that, uh, you can get to all of this information that our, our staff and members have been collecting about the meat processing issue and potential solutions. There's a great fact sheet on there to introduce the, the issue. Um, and that whole lineup of webinars are listed there. So it's wisconsinfarmersunion.com slash processing. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.